Special thanks to Log10 Pilot Logbook for supporting the Pilot Base podcast. Log10 is the leading logbook on iPhone, iPad, watch and Mac for over 100,000 pilots worldwide. I'm super excited to report that Pilotbase has negotiated an extended three-month free trial for all listeners. Just visit corridine.com forward slash pilotbase free trial. That's corridine.com forward slash pilotbase free trial. And for those needing data imported into Log10, the team can do that for you. Get started at corridine.com forward slash pilotbase free trial. the pilot base podcast i'm ben and i've been a pilot for over a decade and i'm dave categorically not a pilot every monday we'll be chatting to both pilots and non-pilots with amazing aviation stories from all around the world you can find all episodes of the pilot base podcast for free wherever you get your podcasts if you like what you're hearing subscribe to our channel and leave us a review in this episode, we head back across the Atlantic Ocean to meet Major Christy Wise. Now, imagine how elite you'd have to be to become a US military pilot. Now imagine that, but as an amputated leg. Christy's life and Christy's journey have been incredible, both in and out of the cockpit. And the way she tells her story, well, you're about to find out. This is Major Christy Wise. Major Christy Wise, welcome to the pilot base. Thank you for joining us. And well, thank you for taking some time off your busy skiing schedule to fit us in. <laughs> you know, it's a tough life here as an Air Force pilot. It's a tough life, so I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, ben, before we get into it with Christy, how are you? I'm doing all right. I worked out today. It's been 11 months since I last got on an airplane, so need to get airborne again pretty soon, I reckon. Whoa. 11 months. 11 months to the day, yeah. What's the longest you've spent out of the cockpit, Christy? Um, After I lost my leg, I was out for 16 months. But um, I spent a lot of time in the simulator every week, so it didn't exactly feel like I was out of the plane. So that was good. Wowzers. 11 months, man. How does that make you feel? Well, it was fine for the first bit because I actually had like a normal sleeping schedule and stuff. But... (laughs) Uh, yeah. kind of getting to the point now where I want to be back in the sky cutting some holes in the clouds yeah Ben is that just is that because of COVID because of all the furloughs yeah so I just got um furloughed from British Airways yeah so, and even the guys that are still there they're hardly flying at all gotcha not a great place to be at the moment the aviation industry yeah that's definitely true quite brutal actually oh I feel like we've started on a downer now. I mean, you, you look no, you look great, and that foliage behind you for the people who don't watch on YouTube and and just listen to the audio podcast, it looks great. You're really cultivating it. Thanks, mate. It's growing into the ceiling a little bit though, which is a problem. Just put it on the floor. <laughs> Will do. Anyway, Christy, I always love to know this because we have great guests from all over the world. Uh, where are you right now? Um, I'm in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Oh, what a beautiful part of the world. Is that where you were born and raised, or is that just where the best skiing is right now? Um, so I was born and raised in Reno, Nevada, but that is Colorado is where the Air Force has me. So being a military pilot, I've moved all around the nation and currently I'm in Colorado. My American geography isn't the best, but Nevada and Colorado, they're not too far from each they're other, not. are they? 
Yeah, they're both on the West Coast. It's not um, really driving distance. I think it's like 16 hours or something, but, um, you know, same side of the country. Okay. I Just mean, a little 16-hour drive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no problem. You do about three laps of the UK. I was going to say, is there anywhere, what would like Exeter to Newcastle be? Would that that wouldn't be 16 hours, would it? No, no, no. It'd be like seven, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That's a long way. That is a long way. Um, right then, where do we start with you, Christy? It has been a very, very colourful life. Um, this is the Pilot Base podcast, and you are a pilot. So let's mm-hmm. start with your with your journey into the cockpit. Are you from an aviation family? I am not. I am actually not from an aviation family or a military family. Oh, wow. So I went to the Air Force Academy out of high school because I was recruited for the ski team. So I was always a ski racer and I just wanted to continue in college. And that was one of the places that I would be able to uh, join their team. Wow. So how does that work? The, The Air Force pay for you to go to college because you're really good at skiing. So the airport, so the academies are kind of unique in that. Um, so anyone that goes to an academy, whether it's Air Force, Navy, Marine, Army, you are going to graduate as an officer and go into the military service. But kind of like a normal college, they also have sports teams. So I went because of the sports team, but I also knew that, you know, it came with some strings attached that I was going to have a military service requirement upon graduation. This is going in a very different direction to I thought it was going to already, and I love it. Um, with regards to the ski racing then, because, of course, yes. some of the greatest ski racers of all time, Lindsey Vaughn, Bodie Miller, you yep. name them, they're from the States. Did a part of you think, right, I can do this military thing, but also maybe I could be an Olympic skier did you did you ever think that skiing could take you all the way or was it always something you used to get the next step whether it was the job in the military or the college degree so originally when I was younger and even in early high school I was hoping to go to the next step and then it was a little bit of a reality check about junior senior year of high school where I realized oh I am not good enough to be an Olympic skier I'm good enough to be a college skier at a small college. That's the level of skier I am. So it was kind of a really cool um, niche place for me, the Air Force Academy, where I was still able to compete in the collegiate level, but knew that it otherwise I didn't really have a future in skiing. But I still got to enjoy it and then also become a pilot. So Now, I I can't speak on behalf of American military skiing, Ben, but uh, in my younger years, when I used to try and get any excuse to get out to the mountain, I used to go and work on British military ski trips as like a resort rep and as uh, a, an announcer uh, for the ski racing. They have a really good time, mate. They have <laughs> such a good time. I mean, yeah, yes, they race, and yes, there are freestyle competitions, and there are some really good racers. But there are some not so good racers who are Having really good time, at all yeah. the other stuff in the ski resorts. Yep. Uh, so being in Colorado, are you getting any time on the slopes at the moment? I mean, I know yes. the answer to this is yes, so I just want to hear about it. Um, we can't go in Europe at the moment. Um, it's very limited. So if you could just do your best to make me jealous and sort of put me in the mountains right now, that'd be fantastic. 
Yeah, so we'll, I'm sure we're going to get into this later, but now um, when I ski raced in college at the Air Force Academy, I had two legs, so I was a normal able-bodied racer, but now since I've been back in Colorado, I'm actually on the adaptive ski racing team right now, so oh, I was training this weekend and just seeing if I can uh, make a run at the Paralympics, so we'll see. I don't know. It's not going so great right now, so ask me about that later. Well, if you need Paralympic advice, then you need to speak to Mr. Ben Hall as a 2012 Paralympian himself. So yeah. Yeah. We, will, we will get into that. Um, with the adaptive skiing then, are you, on, are you on two skis or are you on one of the sit skis? I'm on two skis. I actually have a full ski leg. Um, and yeah, so I'm on two skis. So that's what I'm trying. It's a lot of uh, angles and physics. That's what I'm kind of tinkering with right now. Are you enjoying it? Is the, is the ski attached to the lower part of your leg and then you've got like a special knee? How does that work? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll have to get it in a minute and I'll show it to you guys. Yes, <laughs> please. Oh, I love um, aviation podcasts. It's uh. a huge, it's like a, you're actually very surprised. It's a Fox bike shocks. So it's like some shocks okay. um, suspended in a metal frame. That's what the knee is. And then the foot is a similar bumper system that clicks directly into the ski. So I don't wear a ski boot at all. Oh, wow. Is it custom? Um, well, obviously it's custom fit to you, but is it custom made for you? Um, no, it's not. It's this company named Biodapt. And it's a guy who's a, he actually won the gold um, in Paralympic snowboarding, Mike Schultz. Yeah. And so he built a leg and all the snowboarders are on it. Um, everyone in the Paralympic snowboarding world, but nobody's on it yet on the skiing side. So I'm trying to introduce it to skiers. Trailblazer. Yeah, oh, I'm, not, I'm not doing so good yet. <laughs> so, but I'm trying, I, that's my goal. <laughs> oh, amazing. I will certainly uh, keep an eye out for that. What a, what a great thing. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I tell you what, while we're on sports, uh, let's talk Invictus Games because okay. I, I think our paths may have crossed without us, without us realising, and how could we? Um, were you at Orlando 2016 or was Toronto was. 2017? Okay. I was, yeah. And did you race in the, in, in the road race, the lap race around the ESPN Wide World of Sports? Um, on, in the car or in the bike? On the bike. On the, I did, yes. Ah, I called that race. Oh, that's awesome! I, yeah, yeah they—it's uh, one of the one of the best things I've ever had the privilege of doing. So, when the Invictus Games started in in 2014, um, they asked me to come to London to do the indoor sports, so the sitting volleyball, the wheelchair basketball, and the wheelchair rugby. And then um, they flew a load of us out as kind of heritage, I suppose. The people who did the first games out to Florida for the second game, so I did the indoor sports again. And the the cycling too. So I will have, yeah, I'll have called you in a in a road race, which is yes. really quite strange, isn't it? Yep, I did both of the cycling events both times, Orlando and uh, Toronto. Oh, amazing! They're they're pretty special events, actually. The Invictus Games, aren't they? Yeah, I think for me, I have. I think a lot of my recovery and the success that I've had since I lost my leg was in part because of adaptive sports. Mm. So that's just been really amazing. The interesting thing for me is that when I lost my leg, there was actually five other pilots in the Air Force that had already gotten back to flying after an amputation. So 
they reached out to me. And so we had this little, we called it the amputee pilot mafia. And we just like <laughs> joke that you had to lose an arm or a leg to enter, but that we were pretty tight knit. And so it was cool because I always had the support from the pilots. And so in my mind, I guess I always knew that I was going to get back to flying and that was possible because it had already been done. But um, I think the hardest part for me mentally was just how long it took, you know, for my leg to heal and the prosthetic, getting your prosthesis and getting it fitted and running and, you know, getting the strength to push the pedals, you know, that was all a very long process. Mm -hmm. And I just, um, in the meantime, I got to participate in sports along the way. And I think that was the biggest thing that helped me mentally because I was just so bored and, you know, the flying thing was just taking so long that I kind of needed something else to be excited about and passionate about. And, you know, I ski raced my whole life. So I was already kind of an athlete. And so I felt like at first I lost that identity a little bit, you know, like, oh, am I going to be an athlete still? And so Invictus Games and Warrior, I first was in Warrior Games and then I got to do Invictus <laughs> twice, but it was just so amazing. And then also just being around other athletes you know I, I went to my first warrior games only nine weeks after I lost my leg oh wow so I was still on my crutches and now I'm around this whole community of amazing people and they're like you gotta try this leg you gotta do this to sleep at night and I just all of a sudden was a part of this amazing community that I you know I didn't what did you compete after nine weeks I did yeah what sports what did you do so it actually was so crazy. This story is just so crazy, guys. I didn't make any of this stuff up. <laughs> so I was in the rehab center in San Antonio, Brooksbury Medical Center, and I couldn't get my prosthetic leg yet because I was waiting for my incision to heal. So I was crutching everywhere. And then all I was doing every day was working out all day, every day. <laughs> that's all I was doing. And so that's when I met one of the Air Force coaches. She was an amputee as well for uh, Warrior Games. And she came into the gym to get one or into the rehab center to get one of her prosthetic legs worked on. And she saw me working out. And so she said, hey, do you know anything about warrior sports? And I said, no. And she, she basically recruited me on the spot. She's like, I think because <laughs> she saw me working out. And I, was in, I was in like such great shape and I was crutching everywhere. So my arms were so strong. And like... <laughs> And so she's like, let's, we're competing in two months. Do you want to go? I was like, yeah, I do. I was so, like I told you guys, I was so bored. Yeah. So then the really cool thing is that first games, uh, Warrior Games, I did everything uh, seated. So I did like the hand cycle. I did wheelchair racing, seated shot put in discus. So everything was just with my upper body, which was already strong from crutching everywhere. And then I said to myself, like, it was really awesome to compete that way that first year so early on and get basically get connected to the community so early and then I said okay if I ever do this again I'm not doing anything seated I'm doing everything standing up or running so then the following year when I competed in Orlando and Invictus it was amazing because I did all the events in track cycling and I did everything upright that was really exciting I mean, community is uh, is a word that you've mentioned a number of times there. And and honestly, Ben, 
I've been lucky to go to a lot of places and see a lot of sports over the years, but I don't think I've ever experienced community like Invictus Games. I've not been to a Warrior Games, and I don't think I'll I'll get the opportunity to. A, a good friend of mine has. He he went a couple of years ago. Was it in Indiana a couple of years ago? Maybe. Yeah, it was, and it's it's so neat because you know Invictus is just the international version yeah, of Warrior yeah. Games. So yeah. it's the same. It's the same thing. And you're right. It's just such an amazing community i remember this one story i'm walking i'm at invictus games in orlando and i'm walking back to my room and i competed in way too many events and so i was really sore my leg was hurting i'm basically like limping back to my room and then i look next to me and there's this british soldier he has a same amputation as me same leg same prosthetic leg and he's also limping (laughs) so we're both like we like have this little moment and we like start talking and stuff and you know, he was a special forces troop, got his leg um, injured in Iraq or, and, you know, it's just like our stories were so different, but like in this moment, we're like doing the same thing, like limping back to our room after all these sporting events. So it was just so cool. And it's just the, the people that get behind it as well. I remember, obviously, Prince Harry was out there as as one of the founders of it. But then Michelle Obama spoke at the opening ceremony. Joe Biden, when he was vice president, came yep. with Dr. Jill Biden. Um, yep. Michael J. Fox was in the audience one night. We had NBA players and NFL players come in. John Cena was the celebrity coach of the wheelchair <laughs> rugby team. Um, yeah, I, I think it's I, I think it's just an opportunity for for ordinary people to try and give something back to extraordinary people. Really, it's um, yeah, that's, that's a brilliant combination, isn't it? Because in the military, you've got all that camaraderie anyway, and then you've got all the sort of team aspects of the sport, and it just comes together really, really well. Um, yeah. In in the Team USA, has anybody gone on? To do something, I mean, obviously you're making it your objective now to try and get to a Winter Olympics. But in the UK, off the back of the first uh, Invictus Games, there's a guy called JJ Chalmers. And now he's a, a presenter on the BBC, which is one of our big broadcast channels over here. There's a guy called Dave Henson who won the bronze medal in the 200 metres for double amputees at the at the World Championships. Um, are there any cases of American athletes who've uh, who've gone on to do that? Yeah, for sure. And it's just kind of such an amazing thing, I think, because Invictus then can be a stepping stone. So I think a lot of amputees or, you know, anyone who's injured gets into it in their initial, like right after their injury. And then they see, oh, I can participate in sports again and I can do this. And then, you, yeah, usually after Invictus, there's a couple that will really pursue it on the national and the Olympic level. And we have quite a few at least on the team. I can't think of any medals, but. It's amazing because I bet when you first lost your leg, the first thought was like my world's just come tumbling down and now it's just actually opened up all these other opportunities that you would never have otherwise. For sure. Before we move on, because this is just turning into a sports podcast, uh, podcast, which I'm here for, but a couple of your old teammates, um, were big in the Invictus game. So Charlie Walker, Ben, Netra Rana, those boys. Yeah. 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 So I used to play sitting volleyball for Great Britain. Cool. Um, so in sitting volleyball back in the day, it was one of the few sports where you can have minimally disabled people. Um, so in the squad, you could have two minimally disabled people. So effectively it was, you had an injury which causes you not to be able to play for the um, Olympic team. Right. So for me, I had, um, 
a knee reconstruction like 10 okay. years ago. And my knee was just in such bad shape, it was like moving all over the place that I, I got qualified for to be a minimally disabled person on the student volleyball team. Uh, and about half of the team were probably ex-military. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they had some crazy stories. Well, there's one guy actually. So Charlie Walker, he probably hates me naming him on a podcast, but nah, what it is. Um, he was a bomb disposal expert and he lost both of his legs through meningitis. <laughs> crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> the way you've worded the beginning of that, Ben, makes it sound like had you not blown your knee out, you'd have played for the Great British Olympic volleyball team. Is that something you're going on record as saying or...? Dave, you probably didn't mention that. That would be better for me. <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't have been Olympic quality, but I, met, I could have been, you know, if I was a better volleyball player. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm not saying we're not going to go back to sports, but let's bring it back to, to aviation for the time being. So um, you you took the military route through college was that always uh, with the view of becoming a pilot? How did the how did the interest in in becoming a pilot first strike you? Yeah, so I mean, I did, you know, even when I was a high school senior, realizing I wasn't good enough to be an Olympic skier, I did my research. You know, okay, I think this Air, Air Force Academy has a ski team. I think I would enjoy Colorado. But I also, you know, knew I didn't because some athletes actually kind of get tricked a little bit into the academies. They don't really realize what they're signing on for. You know, <laughs> they come to play football and then they show up and they have to march and they're like, what did I sign up for? So <laughs> I was not one of those people. I knew what I was signing up for. I thought it was a very unique experience that I thought I would enjoy. And I wasn't for sure if I wanted to fly, but I knew that was probably a good option. And then once I was at the academy, they do a pretty good job during the summers. They'll let you tour other bases and you'll get to shadow different career fields. So for me, because I'm, you know, I really like being around people. And um, so I thought, oh, maybe I'll want to do, you know, public affairs or personnel or something. But um, just whenever I was shadowing, I was like, no, I want to be a pilot. Like just seeing the pilots and their jobs and of all the things I shadowed, it became pl pretty clear to me that I think this is what I want to do. And it's awesome because I think aviation is very similar. It's kind of a team aspect, like, especially, um, you know, I knew even, you know, I thought about fighters for a little bit, but I just loved the crew aspect. Like I loved being around a crew getting a mission done, everything changes every day. You know, the weather's different every day. The planes are always different. And so to me, it was almost kind of like an extension of sports, mm. like a job that's just has a lot of the similar aspects that I had always really enjoyed. How interesting. Yeah, I've, I've never thought of that, but, but you're absolutely right. That's the first time I've thought of it as a team thing. And I suppose as the pilot, then you're just the captain of the team that day. Yeah, exactly. Leading your crew and especially especially in some of the military environments like deployed and you got somebody who's having an off day, but you still have to get the mission done or you have to keep the crew working together as smoothly as possible. And yeah, something that Ben and I often talk about, um, not necessarily in aviation, but with regards to being a pilot is there's not an awful lot 
of representation. I don't know the statistics, but I know there are an awful lot more male pilots than female pilots. Is that something that that sort of you encountered? Were there any obstacles as a as a result of that? No, I feel pretty lucky. I mean, the statistics are still there. So I know at the academy there was only one in four uh, women at the academy, so twenty percent, and then. As pilots, it's one in five. Um, but it wasn't, I never felt any different. Like I didn't ever feel like I had a different standard or any discrimination or anything. And to me, I always tell people, I feel like I was, it was a little easier for me because I was always a tomboy and into sports growing up. So I kind of was always around the guys anyways. So whenever everyone would ask me, oh, how is it? I'm like, I don't know. I don't really notice it. <laughs> I mean, one in five seems like quite a good ratio, relatively, because I think in the world it's something like one in 20. Wow. Yeah, I think so. I think it's um, one in five, and that was when I was going to pilot training. So I don't know if it's fluctuated since then. Okay. Um, what was the first plane you flew in the military? I flew the T-6, so a little, the little small aerobatic plane. Um, and then we fly that for about six months, and then I flew the T1. Uh, it's kind of a double-engine Beechcraft aircraft, and that's what they fly. Everyone flies those in pilot training, and then I was assigned the C-130, which I've spent most of my career flying the C-130. The big boy, so, so isn't it? They assigned you the C-130. Can you kind of choose your preferences? Yeah, it's kind of – you can kind of choose them, so it's a big equation – when you go through pilot training, it's based on your um, academic test scores, your flight, your check ride scores, then your daily flights. It all goes into this big equation of how you are rated, like what rank you graduate your class in, and then based on what you want. So you can put down all your preferences and then also what's available that time that you graduate. So you could be the best in your class and say, I want to fly the F-22 and then that week they don't have any f-22s and you won't get it so it is somewhat your preference a little bit up to luck and yeah just what's available and your baby is the is the hercules uh-huh yep oh, nice do you do you enjoy flying it i mean i know that might sound like a ridiculous question but some, for some people it's just a job and for some people it's more than that so do you enjoy flying the c-130 yes so i love flying the c-130 i actually so autopilot training i put the c-17 first just because the C-17 had better locations, better bases. Um, and I put the C-130 second because I liked the flying, the mission better. So it's funny because even when I put those, I knew I was putting C-17s first for locations, C-130 second for the flying. And now I just, I'm so relieved that I got sort of my second choice because the flying is just so fun. And you can make any, any you know, locations change anyways. So, so what- what does a day or a week or a month look like as a C-130 pilot for you? So the other great thing that I didn't even know when I put in my list, but I actually was assigned uh, rescue C-130s. So specifically in the search and rescue uh, mission, which is really, really cool for C-130 pilots. Um, so I refuel helicopters in the air. And then we work a lot with the PJs that jump out of the back. And uh, we also work with CV-22, anything, we can refuel anything. So it's just... Air-to-air refuel helicopters. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yep. Only C-130s can do it. 
because of uh because we're props you know so we can generate our own lift so we can fly really really slow so we we refuel the helicopters only five knots above stall speed <laughs> so really which slow one, which like what kind of speed uh 105 usually so slower than we land we land at like 130 knots but we refuel at 105 oh that is uncomfortable but we can also fly like two um we usually fly around at like 220 knots so it's like such a cool job mission because the reason that we have c-130s is even in say afghanistan iraq you know somebody gets shot down or they're injured and it's really far away the helicopters don't have the range to get um far away so that's why they have us the c-130s so we'll go we're kind of the redheaded stepchildren of rescue in that we do all the work but we don't get any of the credit (laughs) because whenever you see rescues you see the helicopter and the person being pulled up with the pjs but what they no one says is like there was hours of work by the c-130 first like we go out we find the person that's down we radio back we tell the helicopters to come we refuel them so they can go that far then they do the rescue. Then we refuel them back. So, so you anyways. do all the heavy lifting and the other people get all the glory. Yeah. Can it's you okay confirm we... what a PJ is? Because in England, that is pajamas. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, pararescue jumpers. Oh, got it. <laughs> sorry. I should. Yeah. They're the guys that um, jump out of the back or go on the helicopter and pull the guys up from the ground. I am so glad we got into this. That is so cool. So I, I just picture like the f-22 is like the sports car with the big exhaust and the spoiler it doesn't need and you guys are like the the sort of old cadillac convertible that you can just sort of sit back and doesn't matter what you do it's loads cooler than it looks i think so yeah (laughs) have you been operational in it yes so i have done i have been lucky enough to do both a couple of rescues in Afghanistan, one in Italy in the deployed environment. And then I've done a couple of rescues back home station. So um, last fall, one of the coolest missions I've ever done was a Mexican fishing boat. It was 1200 miles off the coast of the Pacific off of California. And they had a crane collapse on board the fishing boat and it hit one guy in the head and another guy in the leg. And all they had on board was basically a first aid kit. So they radioed like a distress call. The Mexican military didn't have any capability to get, it was too far away. It was basically two and a half days from shore. And they were worried with the fisherman with the head injury that he wouldn't make it two and a half days. And so then they also asked the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard um, had was already on other missions at the time and they didn't think they could get out that far either. So then our unit in, um, I was in Arizona at the time, we got approval to go on the mission. So we flew, the day flight flew like six hours to the middle of the ocean, airdropped the pararescue jumpers into the water, they got on the boat and like took care of the two patients uh, medically because they're all like trained medics. And then um, I was on the flight that night. So it was supposed to be just a normal Tuesday night training flight. And so then we got retasked because they didn't, they needed more uh, medicine and more blood for the patient with the head injury. And so then we basically the night flight, my flight, we flew 
also five hours in the middle of the ocean at night on our MVGs, drop down, airdrop this tiny little pelican case of blood to the PJs, the pararescue jumpers, and then they got it. And they um, they basically, so that was what my role in that mission was. And they took care of him for the two days until they got to land. Then the Mexican military took over. And then another C-130 flight, not mine, but from my unit, went, landed in Mexico, picked everybody up, and came back home. <laughs> what a gig. <laughs> Oh my goodness me. And you're an expert at accidents at sea as well, aren't you? So Yeah, I am so Yeah. Oh. It's kind of ironic. Yeah, when you think about it that way. So that is that is absolutely astonishing. Well, you've you've brought it up uh, you've brought it up, Ben. So I, I suppose we sh- we should talk about it. Um you you do have a missing leg. Yep. Or or part part thereof. Um I'm sure you've told the the story so so many times, but do you mind sort of telling? I don't. The I don't mind. Again? Okay, sure. cool. The floor is yours. <laughs> yeah. So kind of like we were talking about earlier with your buddy who has explosive ordnance that lost his legs. Another way, I had actually just gotten back from my deployment in Afghanistan, so I'd gotten back from a deployment there, and I was on vacation with friends. Uh, I was in Destin, Florida, and I was paddleboarding in this little protected cove. And I, um, a boat swerved into that area and uh, hit me. So I saw them coming, I was standing on my paddle board and I, um, it had just gotten dark. So I had a large flashlight with me. And so I waved it at them and was like, okay, they're gonna see me, they're gonna go around me. And then I realized like, oh, they're not going around me. It took me maybe a second to realize that. So I jumped off my, paddleboard to like get away and then I got hit I was wearing like a sweatshirt over my swimsuit because it was kind of chilly and I remember the sensation of my sweatshirt getting wet like you know when you jump in the water and your clothes get wet and then I got hit in my shoulder with the front of the boat and then I pushed off the bottom of the boat and I swam down so it was really cool because to me that was the first miracle or you know god I think, or my guardian angel, because there's no way I had time to think that. And had I not swam down after I got hit in the shoulder, my entire body was going to go through the propeller at the end of the boat. But because I pushed off and swam down, the propeller just struck my right leg. So, so who thinks this went down? No, I don't. This is why I'm telling you, God had a plan for me because there's no way. I like, I've never, whoever, it's not like I'd ever thought of that scenario before. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I swam down. So I I swam down, which is really cool. (laughs) I don't know how I did that. And um, it made a weird sound. It didn't hurt or anything. And so I surfaced and I was with um, my friend at the time, Tim, and he was standing right next to me on his board. He jumped off the other direction. So he's like, swam up to the surface. He's like, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. (laughs) Like that tone of voice. Uh, and then uh he swam over to me and that's when we saw like i saw part of the bone sticking out on my leg and i realized oh maybe maybe i'm not fine <laughs> and so he was wearing a long sleeve t-shirt we uh took it off he took it off and we wrapped it around my leg in sort of a tourniquet mm-hmm. and the uh boat that hit me never stopped wow. so i kept going 
And then the next like miracle is I, I don't even remember thinking this because we were in this like protected little cove where there was never any boat traffic unless you lived there, which is my best friends. It was actually at their house. So it was only like a hundred yards from their dock. So, you know, it was like basically their backyard. I had honestly paddleboarded there like a hundred times before. The only boats that were ever in the cove was if you lived there, which we knew everyone that lived there. But anyways, so then I'm looking around for my board. I don't see it because I jumped off of it. And about a quarter mile, eh, like half mile away, there was a bridge where there was all this boat traffic under the bridge. And so I was like, oh, there's a fishing boat over there. I should signal to that fishing boat. And so I got out. I like looked down and my flashlight was still in my right hand. So that was like the next miracle of like, I had my flashlight in my hand to wave at them, but now I've like jumped away, got hit, like swam down. And then now I need my flashlight again and it's still in my hand. So I signaled to them, they came over right away and they had actually seen it happen. So they saw it happen. Um, and so they were already coming to me anyways, but since I had the flashlight and could signal them, they were, you know, they knew exactly where I was. So they came, they got me in the back of the boat. It's, awesome couple Robert and Michelle and they and I laid on the back they had a cooler so I was laying on the cooler and my so we had applied a tourniquet to my leg with the t-shirt but it still wasn't tight enough so I was still losing blood really rapidly and so we used their fishing net we used the handle to like crank down the t-shirt to tie to like um get the bleeding to stop so we estimate this, yeah, we estimate this whole thing happened in about three minutes from the time that I like was standing on the board until being in the back of their fishing boat. So all very, very fast, but I lost about 65 to 70% of my blood in that three minutes. So I just think it's so, I mean, I speak of it positively because I like, you know, another 30 seconds or like any one of the things that happened, had they happened in a different way, I wouldn't be here talking to you guys today. Yeah. I mean, I can't be- so they, he hit you and just drove off. Yeah. I yep. mean, there's no real way you could not notice that, right? Nah. I mean, I'll never know. So I'll never know. And I, I don't think it would do you any good to think about it either, would it? Well, the, so that was actually very interesting. Um, my So Tim, who's with me, and my best friends who were there, uh, there was a police investigation. So it went on for about six months. So wow. the police were actually pretty amazing. They went to all the marinas that very night. They inspected propellers for the next couple months. They went to hotels and got footage from anything that was pointing towards the water. So it was like a very um intense investigation and my friends my best friends because it was basically their house so they kind of had some ptsd over the event because they you know i lost my leg in their backyard and then tim who was with me of course did and so they were always you know getting updates on the case but they would always ask me like do you want any updates and i i just said no because i was like to me it was like i'm like my leg's not growing back either way So to me, I was already like focused on the next thing, like flying, you know, Invictus, like sports, all stuff. Cause I was like, well, I don't know what's going to happen with the investigation, but either way, I got to learn how to live with one leg. So I'm just going to focus on that. Mm. That's that Invictus thing again, isn't it? The master of your fate, the captain of your soul. Um, And 
you speak incredibly positively about it now and you've had a smile on your face at times when you've told us that story um was that has that always been the case (laughs) um I think it's a combination of factors so I have always been like in general sort of optimistic my call sign in my first deployment the one in Afghanistan was um optimist prime (laughs) (laughs) like my crew was like would make fun of me because they're like Christy you're gonna say like oh I'm so excited and that could be just that there's green beans at the chow hall today or that we did this cool mission I'm like oh you're right (laughs) I gotta stop like being excited about everything (laughs) so that is kind of true. Like, um, I was always, I've always been that way. And then I think too, just in the hospital, the first couple of days, all the doctors and nurses, everyone was so surprised that I lived through that, that it was always like, everyone was just like, wow, we're so happy you're alive. We're so happy you're alive. We can't believe you lived through that. You know, being in Florida, they see boating fatalities all the time. So I was maybe the first one that had really lived through something like that. So it was kind of cool because their attitude about that just kind of, you know, transferred onto me and like my family of like, wow, yeah, I'm not necessarily right now sad that I lost a leg. I'm just happy to be alive. And so originally it was very, very positive. I think it was more like for me, the middle of my recovery where I just was really struggling and it was taking longer than I wanted. And that's where I, I got depressed. Whereas in the beginning, I was just so optimistic and motivated um so it's just kind of interesting that like it was easier at the beginning and harder in the middle mm. for me at any point did you think about the possibility of medical discharge whether or not you'd be allowed to remain in the military how did that come like it, it's just so confusing because some people seem to get discharged for something where you'd think they'd be able to stay and other people like yourself Yeah, so that's a very interesting dynamic. I think at every turn, they tried to discharge me. So they, that's kind of the default position. And they would even say, like, even a couple days after my accident, they're like, oh, but the military is going to take care of you. Don't worry when you get discharged. And I'm like, I'm not going to get discharged. Luckily for me, I had those five other amputee pilots that I told you guys about. And so they kind of, encouraged me all along like hey people are gonna assume you're getting out but we're gonna help you figure out like basically they helped me stack my medical board so I had to undergo two boards one just to stay in the air force and one as an officer in general and then the second one to get returned to flying so they basically helped me stack it so that they can't say no like if you can pass the normal physical fitness test if you can do all the the rudder forces if you can get in and out of the plane. So I had to practice like getting out of the plane. If you can do all of that, then they can't say no, really. So um, they helped me stay positive, but everyone else I talked to was just assuming that I was getting out. And even like little stuff, like even in the rehab center at Brooksville Medical Center, people would find out I was a pilot and they would say, oh, what did you fly? And I would always correct them and I'd say, well, I do fly. C-130s. Amazing. It seems like at at every stage of your recovery, I hope you don't mind me calling it your recovery, there's always been something to to sort of hold on to, always something to aim for, whether it's 
you know the the adaptive sports or whether it's people who are trying to help you and inspire you or or whether it's getting back in the plane or the next mission it just seems like you've always had had that thing or those people who've just wanted to help you and wanted you to succeed yes absolutely and i think sometimes even people will sort of give me a lot of credit but like i did and i'm like i didn't do it i couldn't have done any of this it's such a team effort. Like had I not gotten involved in warrior games and Invictus games right away, I wouldn't have known what I was capable of doing, you know, or if I hadn't had those other five pilot mentors, I definitely wouldn't have gotten back as fast as I did just because they helped me. They taught me the steps. They, when I was struggling with the brakes, I called, like, I literally had this one sim, a simulator in the C-130 and I kept crashing it every time I could not get the force on the pedals. I was kind of, yeah, I was kind of freaking out. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I can't do this. And the instructors are kind of like watching me and I'm crashing it every time. And so I'm like, can I take, can I go to the bathroom? I need a bathroom break. So I go in the bathroom. I call every one of the amputee pilots. I'm like I'm crashing it. What do I do? <laughs> and so it, like, you know, two of them answered and they said, Hey, try this with your seat position, try this technique. And so to me, I'm like, I don't even know what, yeah, like I have so so much of where I am is because of the support I had around me as I was going through my recovery. I think a lot of that is driven by your personality and your drive though, because it would be quite easy just to say, I've lost my leg, I'll take my medical discharge, get some insurance money and go and sit on my ass for the next 10 years. Um, and I think it comes from inside. I mean, it's it's you that reaches out to all of these people and yeah. you know decides where you want to be and what your goals are. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. I think for me though too it's it was more it's like kind of crazy cuz I knew that getting back to flying would be so hard, like really a lot, really tough. But I also it was like scarier to me to think of, well if I don't fly, what am I going to do then? Like I love flying. And I almost didn't even realize, I think, how much I loved it until I lost my leg. Because then I was like, you know, once it was sort of taken away from me, I was like, this is what I love to do. Like, I don't want to do anything else. So as hard as it is and however long it, however long it takes, I'm going to get back to it because it's more depressing to me to think of the alter alternative. Can I ask some like technical things just about how you fly? So... Yeah. Obviously, you've got to press the rudder. Do you, like, fix your knee? Great question. So I – it's kind of ironic because I think I literally fly the hardest plane possible for a right leg amputee because of the props in the C-130 and P-factor. We always have some pressure on the right pedal. So I'm like, man, if I lost my left leg, <laughs> it's way easier because – Every flight, we have constant right rudder. And that's actually anything with a prop, just because of the way the prop spins in P-factor. So um, I had to build up the strength in my residual leg. So I'm an amputee just above the knee. So I still do have muscles in my hamstring. And um, so I hold my foot on the pedal and I use those muscles. I pull down with my hamstring to straighten my prosthetic leg to hold the pedal. And I originally did lock my knee because I wasn't strong enough. So when I first started doing the simulator, I would lock my knee, but 
that was never going to be allowed to come back to duty. Because if you think about it, if I lock my right leg and then we need full rudder force on the left, now my leg is going to bind the control forces. Like my leg will literally hinder us from safely operating the opposite pedal if we need to. So you're literally, with your actual leg, you're going up and down and that's forcing the knee to bend, right? Yes. So I am here. I'll, show you. I'll try to show you in this thing. This is going to be kind of fun. Here's my prosthetic leg. Yeah. So it's on the pedal and I pull down with my hamstring, which straightens that. And then I hold place. Okay. Next question. How do you break? For breaking, I move, I take my hand off the, like if I'm on the throttles or the yoke, I take my hand off that really quickly and I move my heel. Cause like right now it's always resting on the rudder and then I move it to the top and then it's on the brake. Oh, okay. So I brief, like every time I do a takeoff or landing, that's part of my brief to the other pilot is like, you'll see me move my hand momentarily to my foot. I'm just moving it on the pedal and then I put it back. So you get the old wobbly braking down the runway because I get that at the, at the best of times. Um, what do you say? Do you get the old wobbly braking down the runway? <laughs> Sometimes. But it's actually, I've just had to practice it so, so much so that it's smooth and quickly. Um, and so now it's almost like second nature, but it's taken a, it's taken a while to get there. That's just another kind of, I don't want to use the word miracle, but it was in my head and I can't think of an alternative because even if the amputation was another two inches up, you probably wouldn't have had enough strength in the hamstring to do what you need to do to make it work. Yeah, so we, it's definitely true. We have one of our amputee pilots in the Air Force, he is higher than me, so he's a lot higher, but he's not flying C-130s. So it is possible even a little bit higher, but more difficult. So, and the other thing too, is like what I tell people is they didn't give me any breaks. So like our, you know, I had to be able to do the most amount of pedal pressure. So in our, our books, it actually says up to 150 pounds of force. And so I had to do a leg lift on the leg machine in the gym with 150 pounds in front of the flight docks. Um, the good the good thing is I didn't have to do it a full 90 degrees because like I'm not strong enough for that. I just had to do it as far as I would need to on the pedal. So if you think about that, it's like about bent your your foot on the pedal has been about, you know, 15, 20 degrees and then straight to hold the pedal. So I had to prove to them that with 150 pounds, I can go this range of bending that I would need on the pedal and I can hold it. So I feel so inadequate at the moment because that is the reason I currently don't have a medical because I've just had a, an ACL revision reconstruction like in oh, November. Uh, and it's exactly that. I can't, I can't push hard enough at the moment. Well, Ben, it took me like eight months to build up that strength. So that, it, it, you know, it was a process. Like it was. Yeah. But yeah. Ben's, Ben's six foot four and 220 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Must do better. <laughs> How long do you think until you'll be able to, Ben? Are you on a are you on a schedule for it? Uh, probably two months ish. Oh, good. Okay. I mean, I'm in no great hurry, am I? The aviation industry isn't exactly buzzing with pilot jobs at the moment. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. Uh, well, fingers fingers crossed for you. Um, can you tell us about 
some of those guys that you've said the the amputee pilots who yeah who helped you back into the cockpit would they mind you maybe naming them and, and telling a couple of their great yeah, stories I don't think so so the first one was John Alvarez he was in 1997 he has a really cool story he was flying a helicopter in Ecuador and crashed um and actually um some of the crew members died in that crash and he was pulled out of the water like in this by a local and him and his engineer i think slabs were saved and then actually a c-130 came in and landed there and got him out but he ended up losing his leg below the knee and he got back to flying he actually it's kind of interesting for him he was in the navy and he was on an air force assignment that time so then he because he was with the air force unit when he crashed he's like i want to get back to flying Air Force helicopters. And so he's like a very, we always tease him because he never actually went underwent a medical board because he basically just like when the Navy came asking for him to like med board him, he's like, oh, but I'm already deploying with the Air Force unit. And then I think the Air Force also just assumed the Navy did one on him. So he just kind of just snuck through. But of course he did, like he had to do everything everyone else did in the helicopter. So he, just, yeah, the Navy and the Air Force don't listen to this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> he went on He went on to have a great career. He was a commander. He did a bunch of missions and then retired. Oh, so he was the first um, in 1997. Then we had another above the knee in 2005. Um, his was a, maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, Ben, but his was actually a knee surgery that went bad. And then he <laughs> lost his leg above the knee. Sorry, it's the truth. No. <laughs> oh, and, uh, Must keep up with my physio. Yeah, yeah, too. Crikey. <laughs> yeah. So he was the first to fly above the knee, and his is pretty amazing because he did have to go through the medical board, and nobody supported him. So he tells a story of, like, he made – he learned – taught himself to run in his garage on a treadmill. He built a, like, harness because he would fall so much attached to the ceiling. And so he, like, taught himself how to run. Wow. And, you know, like, got back to flying when no one had really – you know, John had done it. But John's was very, like, not public knowledge until later. And so, you know, Andrew didn't necessarily know about him. And so he got back to doing it, which was awesome. Uh, and then since him, there's been another guy who had a motorcycle accident. He flies U-28s. And then only one year prior to me and was a guy that I actually knew from the Air Force Academy. So this was a really cool part of my story. So Ryan was in pilot training in Texas, which is where I went to pilot training. He was a year older. And he was also in a boating accident. And he lost his, his leg below the knee. And he was able to finish pilot training eventually and got, and was flying C-17s. So even for me, when I was in the back of the ambulance headed to the hospital and I still had my leg, it was still attached, but um, I couldn't feel it. So I knew that was bad. Like, ah, I can't feel it. It's not good. And so in my mind, I thought, okay, this is going to take me off the schedule for a while. I think the schedulers are going to be upset, but worst case, Ryan did it. I can do it. So I was already kind of thinking about him, even in the ambulance, which was awesome. Oh, amazing. Amazing people. And are you still a member of the Amputee Pilot Mafia? Yeah, I am. Yeah. And I talk to them. We kind of keep in touch, you know, all the time. And 
when I had my first deployment after losing my leg, I asked them and they're like, you know, give it, you know, you have to consider so many other things. So they're like, make sure you pack this tool and this extra thing. And so they've just been awesome. And we've even had a couple other pilots, not just a bunch of um, random, like a crew chief, Air Force crew chief. So I helped mentor him. And then a couple other non-military pilots have reached out to me and how do I do the brakes? I tell them, okay, here's what you do. Uh, <laughs> so it's really cool. How did you, I mean, obviously I can understand how you got the call sign Optimist Prime, but was there a specific incident? Was there was there one mission where it was bestowed upon you? No, that one, there um, wasn't really anything specific, but I actually have a new call sign and I'm going to show you guys. It's really cool. Yes. So my, that like Optimus Prime was like my unofficial one on my first deployment, but now my call sign is uh clockwise. Okay. So with my last name being wise, but it's because I can um, spin my leg around upside down. Like <laughs> so it twists around like a clock. And so it freaks everybody out. So <laughs> my call sign now, which everyone knows me by is a uh, clock. Oh, that is so good. <laughs> Amazing. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'll be back with you in a minute. <laughs> well, guys, it's good because, you know, this new generation, everyone with digital clocks, they don't understand, they don't laugh as hard because, you know. Yeah, yeah, they don't get it. That's old folk. We know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, we, oh, know, but we know what the hand of a clock looks like. Oh. Um, this might sound like a weird thing to say, but um, prosthetic legs are so cool. They're yeah. like super cool. How many have you got? Have you got like a leg for all occasions? Yeah. So the funny thing is, I mean, I think this was maybe a military thing, but I love humor. Like you got to make fun of this stuff. It just makes it better. And so I have currently seven legs, <laughs> but they um, all have names. Okay. So. Um, the one I just showed you, this is a Xena warrior princess. Um, <laughs> it's like your go-to leg. Yeah, so she's a X, an Autobot X3. Um, and so, yeah, I named her Xena warrior princess because I was like, she's going to help me get back to flying, which she did. So that's Xena. So that's the flying leg as well. Yeah, it's my flying leg. Yep. Like daily, most activities, kind of the default leg, unless I'm doing something specific. And then I have um, running leg is Forrest from the movie Run, Forrest Gump, Run, Forrest Run. Um, I've got Petalina for biking. Ariel the mermaid is uh, my swimming <laughs> leg. My ski leg right now is Shredder. Um, oh, I have a fancy looking one named Barbie. So yeah, I just makes it. What? Is that for fancy occasions? Yeah, she's um like looks like a real leg. Okay. But she just mostly sits in the closet because it's really heavy and not very fun to walk in. So I don't usually wear Barbie. So it just makes it kind of fun, you know. I get a new leg, or even you know, with my family or my boyfriend, it's like, hey, has anyone seen Ariel? Like, where's <laughs> someone want a carrier for me? So it just makes it more fun. So my wife's got a prosthetic arm. And- okay. So she's got a story where she she was on a volleyball camp. So she's American as well. So she played for the USA national team. 
Awesome. Uh, she was on a volleyball camp and she left one of her arms in the hotel. Apparently it got found by the cleaners like after she had left and gave her the fright of her lives. And then she got a phone call when she was back in England saying, I think you might have left an arm in a hotel. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like so funny, you know, just like, yeah, there's some funny things that happen. You just got to laugh about it. Yeah, I, th- that's something that I that I didn't realise. I remember speaking to an old mate of yours, Ben, Rob Richardson, and he was telling me one of his favourite things is watching people who aren't amputees getting awkward with people who are amputees. He just used to find it hilariously funny. And I'll be the first to admit that was that was me in, in the beginning. And uh, I was at a sitting volleyball event. You weren't there, Ben. It must have been before you were selected. And it was kind of busy. There were loads of courts going on. But there is a, there is a job or a voluntary position in adaptive sports where people who do have prosthetics, arms, legs, whatever um, – they'll very often before the match, they'll get put into a cart and they'll get taken to a safe place until the end of the game. Well, I had a clipboard in one hand and a microphone in the other hand and I was announcing the teams onto the court, buzzing around, probably going a little bit too too fast, full of kinetic energy. And I wasn't looking where I was going and I have fallen over one of these carts full of prosthetic limbs and there were arms and legs everywhere. I'm on the floor drowning in in, in arms and legs, mortified, thinking, oh, no, somebody's going to kill me. And I've looked up, and there were just a load of sitting volleyball players just laughing, like I've never seen people <laughs> laugh in their, in their lives. And, yeah, I, um, they didn't let me live it down, and they gave me so much stick for it. But, yeah, just, uh, just a really funny moment. And, again, people, people making the best of the, of the situation. It was great. Yeah, I think so. But I think you'd probably be angry with me if I tripped over Barbie, right? Nah, she just sits in the closet anyways. Okay, yeah, I've already got the impression Barbie's not a favourite. Yeah, Barbie's well, not she, a diva. I did, so I deployed to Iraq in 2019, and Barbie is, she's two purposes. She looks really nice, looks just like a real leg, and then it's also my backup flying leg. So it's just because the Xena is actually computerized, the one I normally fly with, and if the computer goes out or the hydraulics go out, then it doesn't really work very well. So Barbie is just a mechanical knee that will work no matter what. So she's my backup flying leg. Dave is amazed by computerized knees, aren't you? So cool. It's so cool. You should get one, Ben. Your knees are terrible, mate. You should get a computer. I know. I've I've thought about this. Just (laughs) chop it out. Get a bit of metal in there. Get a good one. Always wear shorts then. Absolutely. Anyway. Um, so what happens, obviously you're, you're really happy with what you do now. You love flying, you love the C-130. Um, how much longer do you think you'll be in the military? And do you think you'll continue as a pilot when the military journey's over? Um, yes. Yes to both questions, but I'll explain a little bit. So I'm actually in a really cool job right now. So I'm not currently flying the C-130. I'm back at the Air Force Academy. So I'm commanding a, a squadron of cadets. So kind of really cool. Like I was a cadet once and now I'm back um, leading some cadets. And then I get to fly the Cirrus. So a small single engine plane down at the Air Force Academy airfield teaching cadets. Is it the SR-22? Um, I think so. You're asking me something. Single engine prop. Yeah, single engine prop. Yeah. 
And it's at a lot of um, civilian FBOs and stuff, for sure. It has the parachute if you mess it up, like for the whole plane. Have you heard about this? Yeah, it is cool. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. No way. So what, if the engines go, you just pull the ripcord... Yes, and, get and the gently. plane and the plane goes down. You don't have to like jump out or anything. <laughs> it's insane. I'm not sure I trust it. I know. I don't think any of us trust it either. But you know, hopefully, I don't have the occasion to test it out. Yeah, yeah, that is one of the things you literally never want to know if it works or not. Does it yes. work? Hopefully, I never find out. Please, right. thank you. So you're all right. So you're there. You're there right now. You are. Um, the apprentice turned master, as it were. Yes. So I'm doing this for three years, um, which I actually um, really sort of advocated, you know, argued for them to give me this job because I do love a C-130 and the rescue mission, but just going through all of that, losing my leg, it's just really tough. Like just, and even the flying, the daily flying, even after I was requalified, it was still very, you know, rudder intensive, like hard as an amputee. So after a couple of years of that, I was like, I still love flying. I still love it, but I need a little bit of a break. I need an assignment that's a little bit easier and uh, can just kind of, you know, I wanted to be back with cadets, sort of like, you know, get to lead the next generation, kind of get excited about the military again. Not that I wasn't, it's just my journey was so tough that I was like, I want to do something to kind of reignite that passion and um, fly something a little bit easier for three years. So that's what I'm currently doing. And then I'll go back to C-130s after this. Um, and then I do plan on doing 20, basically by getting this assignment with the cadets I signed on for four more years. And I'm already, I've already been in 12. So I'll be very close to uh, 20 years by then. So I think I'll just stick it out. But I would love to fly commercial airlines when I'm done. And commercial airlines are not very rudder intensive, I assure you. I know, I know. It's so funny because... So many times in my C-130 journey, people were like, well, you could just switch planes, you know, it'd be a lot easier. One of my friends, she, I had just like failed a ride because I was struggling with the, um, with the max effort landings. And she's like, you know, I just keep my feet on the floorboard the whole time. It's like, don't tell me that. So uh, in my, uh, in my very limited uh, time speaking to, to pilots and great people like yourself, there is always the Boeing versus Airbus discussion. And apparently flying an Airbus is an absolute doddle. I, somebody told me that I could do it with no training. Isn't that right, Ben? Well, you're a very special man, Dave. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that, that's the – I was going to ask you, have you got any um, – sort of aviation ambitions but flying commercial is is something that you'd love to do yeah so I do you know I've really enjoyed the military and I, I you know they've supported me a lot and it's been a very interesting career the tough thing about being a military pilot though is that you know flying is only a part of your job so so much of my job is being an officer too and so that's why to me flying commercial afterwards is exciting I'm like I just want to yeah, fly I to fly. I don't want to because you've got secondary duties, haven't you? Basically, you've got to work a full work oh, yeah. plus some. Whereas yeah, for us, so. it's like you get to the airport an hour and a half before your flight. You know, you do a bit of paperwork, you fly a plane, and then you go for beers and golf. I know. That's <laughs> I can't wait for that because, like, as a military pilot, it's like the days you get to fly, you're like, yes, thank God, I'm flying today. 
because all the other days you're busy doing all this other work. So. Well, when we used to fly to like San Francisco and LA, we used to have a lot of pilots bring their skis and snowboards and go go into the mountains. No way. Perfect. Oh, what a life. It's a what tough. A life. It's a tough life as a pilot. You know, it's a tough life sometimes. Do either of you um, know any instances or examples of amputee commercial pilots? Um, I do actually. So one of our uh, Air Force amputee pilots, he got out and he flies for Delta now. Awesome. And then um, I've met or at least talked to a couple. So I think FAA is a little bit better um, than the military. So a little bit more forward thinking. They do this thing where you just have to do a, it's called a soda statement of demonstrated ability. So you just have to fly with some evaluator instructor from the FAA and do kind of like what I did in the simulator with the military guys, just show them that you're capable of operating the pedals and everything. Well, it makes sense because if you can get like a slightly overweight 65 year old, I mean, you're going to be quicker at evacuating than they are, right? Yeah. So three major boxes to tick on your bucket list then complete your military service with a plum, get to a winter Paralympic games and fly a commercial plane. Yeah. That's how you sewn it up. <laughs> uh, I think we should probably go for a gold medal at the win- Winter Paralympics. Oh, come oh, no. on, Ben. Guys, that one is, I don't even know. If the, currently, I'm not sure if the Paralympics are going to happen, so we'll see about that. But Ask ask Ben if he got a Paralympic medal. Yeah, Ben, tell us your story. Okay, so in my house, I have three Paralympic medals. I, no, 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 no. That wasn't the question, Ben. <laughs> we were close, Dave. I mean, close in so much that you were in the same room that the medals were won. Yeah, correct. Okay. Um, how many's how many's Mrs. Hall got? Yeah, she's got three. That's cool, isn't it? Yeah, she's got Athens, Beijing, and London. Awesome. Yeah, really amazing. Um, hey, sitting sitting volleyball, Ben, is so cool. Yeah. Like, watch it. Um, I have played a little bit. I would have loved to do it at Warrior Games or Invictus, but... I didn't do any of the team sports because you have to like go to camps and train with the team. And, you know, I was back at my base um, trying to get returned to flying. So I couldn't take any time off to go try to join one of the team sports. But I love watching sitting volleyball. It is so cool. Well, if you ever want to play or you're close to Oklahoma, I can hook you up. So, so Christy, it sounds like you've got a very full life and, um, <laughs> It turns out we've only really scratched the surface because you somehow find time to foster children as well. Yeah, so that is a kind of cool story. But I, um, when I was at the Air Force Academy, I was working, I did a volunteer event with uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation. So I got to meet this really cool family. They had twin daughters. One had a brain tumor. And so that's why she was doing the Make-A-Wish thing with they actually came to the academy and we were taking them around the airplanes and stuff at the academy. So that was really cool. But they also had, besides their twin daughters, they had 10 um, foster children. 10. So I remember 10 and twin daughters. So I, I talked to Sandy, the mom, and I remember asking her, I said, Sandy, do you just love kids or why do you do this? And she said, no, not really. <laughs> She's like, I just do it because nobody else does and someone has to love these kids and it could be me. Mm. 
So it was really cool that you said that. That always kind of stuck with me. And um, as I was moving around base to base in the military, I just had this sense, I had this feeling that I never really was a part of the communities that I lived in. So this was even before I lost my leg. I just felt like, oh, I'm just kind of nomadic. Like I'm moving all the time. I don't really get super involved in the local communities of all these places I live. And so I had always, since her, I'd wanted to be a foster parent. I thought that was a cool, like just a different thing to do. And so once I was stationed in Georgia, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to look into it. I'm just going to see if I can do it. And so I ended up becoming certified as an emergency or they call it like a temporary foster parent. So um, only like temporary cases. So I never would have a kid, you know, the longest I had someone was, was for a week. I had a teenager for a week. But usually I would just have kids for a night, a weekend. And it was really cool because they actually need more temporary foster parents because nobody gets into foster parent for the temporary. But if, say, the mom is caught with drugs in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. and the police come and take the kids, like they need somewhere to go at 2 a.m. And so that was kind of the niche, the small job that I would feel is like they could call me in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. Or it was awesome because they would call me on like a Wednesday night and they'd say, hey, can you take an eight-year-old tonight? I'd say, nope, I'm flying tonight. I can't. But then maybe the next week I'd get that same call and I'd say, yeah, I'll take them. <laughs> so it's just really cool. It was um, just so fun, honestly. It kept my life so exciting. The kids were fun. I'd ride skateboards with them. I'd hang out, get them pizza, you know, and I think maybe slightly spoiled because I usually had them for such a short amount of time that I would just focus on having fun with them. And so I didn't really see a lot of the discipline issues or the, you know, I had some awkward situations for sure, but I didn't have a lot of the hard things of being a foster parent. Mm. And so I lost my leg in Georgia Sorry, this was supposed to be short, and it is not short. No, 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 please, please, please. So I lost my leg in Georgia. I, um, you know, I, I let the state foster department know, hey, I'm not home. I'm not going to be home for a while. I'm in Texas undergoing my rehab. So eight months later, when I finished my rehab, I went back to Georgia. I actually called this the um, child and family services said, Hey, I'm just letting you know, I'm getting back into town, I'm back. And they're like, great. They had been, you know, calling me, checking on me and stuff. And so then they called me like an hour later and they're like, yeah, so since you're back, um, any chance you can take a teenager tonight? <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, so funny, like literally I'm driving back from rehab. I have recovery. I have all my prosthetic legs in the back of my car. I have all this clothes and stuff that I had for eight months. I haven't even gone back to my house in Georgia and I'm already getting a call saying, can you take a foster kid tonight? And so I, I thought about it and I was like, yes, you know, this is like, to me, it was almost more of like, the more I do the same things that I did before I lost my leg, then the more my life feels the same still. Like I'm not any different. Like I'm still Chrissy. Like, yeah, I'm Chrissy now with one leg, but I'm still the same person as I was before. And that ended up being the biggest blessing in disguise I could have ever imagined because I had a roommate. Um, she was a college student when I lost my leg and she had since graduated while I was in recovery. She graduated and she moved out. And then all of my best friends 
were deployed on a deployment that I was supposed to be on, but I wasn't because of my, um, obviously my recovery. So I think that first week, and when I was in recovery, I was actually living with my sister. She came and lived with me while I was going through recovery. So I, I think that first week back would have been so hard in Georgia because now I'm back home, but everything's different. My friends are all gone. They're on a deployment that I'm not on. My roommate's gone. I'm in this house all by myself. I'm used to flying, being on the flying schedule. I'm not because I hadn't gone through any of the medical board process yet. So I'm literally just doing like a desk job every day. And so that week, I think, would have been probably one of the hardest weeks of my recovery because everything was so different. But instead, because I had a foster teenager, every night I was like, okay, what are we doing tonight? All right, we're going to movies. Okay, and tomorrow, <laughs> let's go play basketball at the park. Let's. And so it's so cool because I think it just shifted my mind from like, here's my problems, here's how my life has changed. And then instead it was all about this foster kid and like, how can I support him? So it was just amazing. Now, my mum was a, was a foster parent um, and she's a great woman and God, I love her dearly, but I can't help but feel as though it would have been much cooler to have a pilot as a foster <laughs> parent than, than my mum. Um, <laughs> I love you, Paula. I'm so sorry. I've thrown you under the bus there. Um, no, absolutely incredible stuff. So how, how long did you, did you do that for? Are you still on, on any of the, the registers to do it? Yeah. So I, um, did it in Georgia. I also did it a little bit in Arizona, which was my last duty station. And then right now in Colorado, I'm undergoing the training. The one thing that sucks is that every state in the U S is different. Uh, so every time I move, yeah. I have to get recertified. Um, and then some of the rules are different. So in Georgia, it was the best for doing that temporary stuff. In my other states, it hasn't been as easy to do. So it sounds like it sounds a lot like being a pilot. They're always making you jump through hoops to do something, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, right. What have we got here? We've got skier, pilot, athlete, um, foster carer. What Dave, you're just making us feel bad. I'm sorry. I know this is what my friends say. I don't, but really, I think it's, I just, a lot of it, I think is the military, like moving so much. Um, being a foster parent was one thing that made me feel a part of the communities I was in. Mm. So, you know, I don't know if I would have done that not being in the military. I'm not sure. Or, um, you know, for me, just like sports or whatever, because my life has been some somewhat so nomadic, then I do like really focus on my hobbies or the things that I love, because that makes it feel the same no matter where I'm at. Yeah. And I suppose for the for the kids and the teenagers that you fostered as well, it's it's trying to give them that sense of belonging as well. No matter how temporary it is, because you know how important that is to you for you to be able to pass that on to them as well. Something quite special, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And I had, oh my gosh, I had just like, and even after those first few kids that I had after I lost my leg, just kind of renewed, like, this is why I do it. Because now I'm teaching them, hey, I've been through some hard things too. Like, you know, you're not in foster care for no reason, yeah. but I'm doing okay. You can do okay. I had this little girl, she was eight. She was the cutest girl. And she's talking to her mom on the phone. You know, I'm letting her use my phone. And she goes, I'm kind of eavesdropping from the other. And she's like, yeah, Miss Christie, who's watching me, mom, she has only one leg. 
I still like her. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet the kids as well, they'd speak to you in a way and they'd ask you questions that some adults would probably be scared to. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. Kids just say what they think, which is really fun. Yeah. And what else have I missed, Ben? You've also missed the fact that Christy runs a non-profit charity giving prosthetic le- kids uh, prosthetic legs to kids. Of course she does. <laughs> Who doesn't have a charity nowadays? Well, me. <laughs> That's kind of true. Tell me about that then, Christy. So yeah, one le- so it's called One Leg Up on Life, and it was just based on um, in the hospital. It's really cool. My the military actually put one of my friends on official orders to escort me in those first like two weeks, he was doing all the safety investigations and it was basically his primary military job was to take care of me, help take care of me. So that was just so cool. It was called the family liaison officer, the flow. So we always make fun of him. We're like, Oh, where's the flow? (laughs) But it was just so cool. Like a way that the military supported me in the very beginning was, you know, assigning him to my case and like helping make sure everything was happening smoothly. So it was, you know, less pressure on my family because he was there. So him and my sister who was there with me, their phones just kept ringing off the hooks. Like people were texting and calling like all my military friends, my Academy friends from my hometown. And then even from like, the area where I got hit because of that police investigation we talked about earlier, like so many people knew about me and were, you know, trying to check on me. And so George, he's the flow. He's like, I'm just going to make a blog. I'm going to call it one leg up on life. This like clever name, just so that we can post things on the blog and people will stop calling me. So it was kind of a really cool story. Cause it was like, all of us were like, Oh, sweet name, George, whatever. We don't care. I mean, it's funny move on and so basically in the next couple like days and weeks this blog just took a whole nother not nothing we ever expected we had like thousands of people following it and that's kind of the first time that we realized like hey we got a lot of people supporting me and supporting this journey I'm on and let's do something positive with it and so that's when we decided Tim the one who was with me the night of uh, the accident my friend Tim he was like let's start a nonprofit. And I want our first event to be a paddleboard race at the end of the summer where you got hit. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) So they, um, yeah, so we did that. And it was so cool because it was like the way, for me, it was like just as important mentally as anything else or symbolically of like, this is where I got hit. This was exactly what I was doing when I lost my leg, but I'm not going to let this change me. I'm not going to be afraid of the water and we're going to use this all for good. So it was really cool. Yep. Wow. So we had, and it was also really cool, like I said, because the local community had been, it was funny because no one even knew my name or that I was an Air Force pilot or whatever. They just knew about the girl on the paddleboard. Mm-hmm. And so our logo for our nonprofit is actually a girl on a paddleboard with a prosthetic leg. And so we put posters all over the area. And so when we had our event at the end of the summer, which was only a couple months later, we had all these people come out to meet me because they had heard about the girl, the paddleboard, but they never actually knew anything about me specifically. So it was just like such an amazing thing. And then my sister, she, I've talked about her a couple of times. She's actually in the, in the medical field. So she was in medical school at the time, but when we decided to, 
do a nonprofit. She had worked in uh, the ha- in Haiti and the Dominican Republic with kids through this other organization. So when we're like, hey, what do we want to do? She was like, well, I know some amputees in Haiti that need help. So let's help them. Wow. So have you and have you been able to provide prosthetic limbs for for people? Have yeah, you got some so numbers we, for us? Yeah, we've gone every year since 2016, not since COVID, but we've given um, probably over like 40 prosthetic limbs to amputees. And then right now it's really cool. We actually have a Haitian prosthetist that we work with in the country. So since COVID, we've just been able to send her um, money and supplies to keep working with amputees, even though we can't travel right now. Amazing. Amazing. And if people are listening and they're wondering if they can get involved, where can they find out more about that not-for-profit organization? Yeah, so they can just go to uh, oneleguponlife.org. Oh, wonderful stuff. I think that is a a great place to end this podcast. Christy, it has been such a pleasure to chat to you and get to know you. And with all the ambitions you've got left to do, um, good luck. I can't see that there's anything that's going to stand in your way from here. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to have, I just want to say one kind of like disclaimer, but. Please do. I think people sort of, a lot of people hear my story and they just focus on like all the accomplishments and like, oh my gosh, you have a nonprofit and you fly and you do all this stuff. But it was just kind of like, this is life. And I just did one thing at a time. You know, I never wanted to really start a nonprofit, but then we had all this support and we're like, why wouldn't we, you know? And um, with flying, I was like, I didn't realize how much I loved it until it was gone. So I was like, I'm going to get back to flying. So I think I try to just hopefully still relate to people. Like I didn't really want or plan any of these things, but I just am now living my life one thing at a time. <laughs> I, regardless of the achievements, I think the overwhelming message from this chat, Ben, I'm sure you'll agree with me, is that Christy's just a pretty good egg. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. I will keep in touch. Thanks for listening to the Pilot Base podcast. We'll be back next week with another great guest from the aviation industry. Don't forget to check out our new career platform at pilotbase.com and all the socials at Pilot Base HQ. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and write us a review.